Hi, this is Amanda Ducadene, and you are listening to The Conversation. It's roughly 10 weeks since I went into quarantine, and most mornings I wake up, and one of the first pieces of information I get on the news is a daily update of how many people have died globally from the coronavirus. As of this morning, May 12th, which is when I'm recording this, the number was close to 300,000 reported global deaths. That is a lot of people. I've been thinking a lot about how easy it is for people's deaths to just become a statistic. And what I wanted to do with this episode of The Conversation is talk to someone who's dealing with the extremely personal, intimate moments of COVID patients' lives and specifically as they are getting closer to death. I know that this could sound really morbid, and I guess it is, but it is also really important that we remember the humanness, the human element, and that every single one of these 300,000 people who have died was a human being with a family and hopes and dreams. Keep your heart open. Uh, for these people and this situation that we're all in. And I hope this episode helps you to do that. His pulse increased a little bit. Sorry? His pulse increased a little bit, so keep talking. What does that mean? I don't know. I mean, it might not mean anything, but I often think it means that they're registering your voice. Okay? I know it's hard, but just keep talking. Jameson, talk to me a little bit about how you came to spend the last four weeks. Uh, working with COVID patients at a hospital in Brooklyn. Um, so I'm a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst. And then uh, I'm a member of the Medical Reserve Corps, uh, which I have been since I worked at 9-11, uh, right, right at the sort of the first couple weeks down at Ground Zero. Um, and I was checking the website to see if they needed help. Um, and I saw a couple positions and I, I knew what they would be um, pretty quickly because it, it was about connecting families with patients through virtual mediums, but they wouldn't ask a psychologist to come if it was just a sort of technical situation. Um, that so would be an IT person. That would be an IT person. <laughs> yeah. So you, when you say that you knew what that would be, um, is that anything you have previous experience working with? I mean, the thing that struck me about this situation, this virus, was that people were dying alone um, and that they were being treated at a distance from their medical providers who were terrified of getting too close to them. Um, so I figured that what it would be would be putting them in touch at moments, critical moments, either that they were being intubated or they were passing um, with their loved ones and that they needed someone to be there physically um, to do that. 
Yeah, I cannot imagine what the last four weeks have been for you and with what you have seen and experienced. And I don't know how many people you were able to be with and as they passed. Over the last month, I mean, I would make, when I was there, 20 calls a day. Um, You know, there were a number of families that I was involved with because I was always going back and I was checking on them and I was calling the family and they knew me um, and I was following them through. Um, And I would say that everybody I worked with except for two people has um, expired. Wow. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. I mean, the idea that they would compare this to the flu to me is um, completely enraging. I'm curious, what is your sense, like what is your felt sense like having been with so many people as they've, you said expired, as I don't know what the correct terminology would be, passed, why don't we say died? Mm-hmm. We just don't even call death what it is, they died. You know, it's so hard for us to even say that. Western culture just can't even embrace death, really. And yet now is the time for us to be using terminology that is what it is, right? So what feeling are you left with? I'm sure it's many things, but if you could pick a feeling, if you could say, having been with this many people as they've died, what insight has that given you? I mean, the gift of being able to bear witness um, and being there, I agree, is uh, profound. Um, You know, there was a woman who was in so much distress, and I don't know how conscious she was. She had been intubated, extubated, and the thing that I hadn't expected was um, the mental confusion that a lot of patients are in from being on such heavy medication and having their bodies be <laughs> live by virtue of machines. I mean, they're really like, you just feel their body at its limit. And um, she was thrashing a lot. And, you know, I put my hand on her and I just pressed really hard on her arm and I watched her settle down. Mm. And it, it just broke my heart to leave. You know, and and every time she would catch my eyes, she was terrified, but then she would settle in a little bit because at least somebody was there. Um, So it means, you know, it means a lot to me to have been the person who was there. I also, despite all the family dynamics, you know, and family dynamics are intense uh, and wild and conflictual and, you know, they are what they are. Um... I have a lot of, I have a different respect for it. I mean, you just sort of watch the family come in and be the family that they are in all of its neurotic madness around the person that they're there for, which is very different when you're in the position of a analyst where you're trying to push people and move them and change them and like work against what's destructive. I mean, this is a situation in which you are what you are and here we are and let's just be here together. Um, And that gave me a respect for the ways in which people find a way to be together, no matter what. In a moment of crisis. In a moment of crisis. Because that's what we're talking about, right? We are talking about 
the one of the ultimate moments in our lives. In fact, the only thing we know for sure is that we are going to die. We don't know when, but it's the only guarantee for any of us. And I, unfortunately, there are so many people who are dying unexpectedly without them being able to prepare or, or have any closure in so many areas. So you are wor working in a trauma situation. Right. I mean, I believe in the necessity of mourning. And I also know what it looks like for people who've been traumatized and can't somehow get there, can't mourn. And the process has to be started. I mean, there's something interesting about mourning, which it's, you know, like they used to have professional mourners come to funerals who would cry. Really? And it was to help, yeah, I mean, there's a long tradition of this, going back to, you know, sort of even more ancient civilizations, because you need something on the outside to help it start on the inside. It doesn't just happen naturally. And you think about this in terms of this country. Freud said that, that the measure of a dignified society is its willingness to let people mourn and to help them do so. And I think that there's something about our civilization, as you're saying, that wants to brush death under the carpet, wants to hide it away. I mean, wants to put old people in nursing homes and forget yes. about it. Um, and I, I saw this work that I was doing as somehow at least allowing that process to happen so that it's not just like your loved one disappears completely, which we also know is happening. I mean, you don't get to see them. They go and they're, they're cremated and you'll never have seen them again when they left home. So at the very least, there's this. I was thinking about this, about how the... One of my, I know this is a weird thing to say, but one of my favorite books is written by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, um, which, you know, talks about the different stages of, of dying and death. And I was thinking about how what's happening with COVID patients is that the final stages of the mourning process is getting interrupted because the, the, the people who are that, who are, the loved ones of the patient, the person who is dying, they can't see them. They can't touch them. They can't say goodbye to them. They can't grieve with them before they pass. They're not part of the process. They're removed from it. And I've thought about what that will do to those people who cannot take the natural evolution, the natural course they need to take to be able to grieve. You must have seen that a lot. I did. I mean, I, 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 the, the first stages of the anger, the denial, the bargaining, I, you know, I, I was, you know, a lot, of, I took on a lot of that at various moments and I um, was glad, you know, be angry or get mad at the doctors or yell at me, go ahead, you know, but like, at least it was starting the process, which, you know, otherwise they wouldn't have had the chance to do and see your loved one, like see them with the intubator, see them, uh, you know, in this strange situation where we're all in these horrible spacesuits, you know, see them in their room, see what's happening. And it was very, very difficult for the families because you would give them time, but of course they want more and more time, you know, like they, you know, they, they, they want to stay on the computer. They want to stay there with the person and you can't do that. You know, you can only do it for so long with so many people. 
oh my God. So you have to tell them we need to go now. And you, so everyone is, you set up the, the iPad, right? And is that correct? And then they're on FaceTime and then you, uh, you know, you help them to communicate or, you know, connect in some capacity. And then how do you decide when like time's up and you have to shut it down? I mean, we had a kind of, you know, 12 to 15 minute rule because the, the person would stay there for hours if they could. And they would invite everybody in the family to come if they could. And um, we want that for them, but we don't, we didn't have the capacity. So I would often tell them, you know, like, we'll do this today. And if we can, we'll do it tomorrow. But um, I'm going to give you like a two, three minute warning when we have to stop. Um, I heard some audio that you shared with me, which was heartbreaking. Can you reflect a little bit on what that moment was? I think the first time that you encounter the loved other on a ventilator in a medically induced coma is really hard. And some people get it right away. They just, they just talk. You know, they just talk. They understand. For other people, it's really hard. They want to know, can the person hear? They, wanna, they want the other person to respond in some way. Sometimes they would just yell, hello, hello. Um, sometimes patients were in less of a coma. Like they were, they, the sedation was less so that they, they would more visibly respond. Like, you know, like in their actions and in their bodies. I was always very careful that the person on the phone didn't make so much demands of this person who was very, very ill. So I'd say, please talk, just please talk, you know, let them know that you're there, let them know that you're thinking about them. But it's hard because you're seeing something that's uh, sort of devastating to look at. You know, it's almost like you don't want to show it to them. Um, you know, and in, in that moment, I, I, I don't know if the person can hear. Um, that I asked many doctors while I was there and they said, well, you, you can't, even when, so, you know, most people are in comas, you don't assume that they can't register, that somewhere it could be registered. And being a psychoanalyst, I believe in the unconscious. So I do, you know, I really believe that. So I would say, I think they can hear you. Um, and I would see changes. I would see them move their hands. I would see changes in the pulse. And I just, you know, I just decided from my perspective, for their grief and for their mourning and for this person to maybe hear a voice that they recognize and be able to register it somewhere was important enough. That was like the baseline importance in doing this work. Was that kind of a universal, um, was there a common thread? that you witnessed was, were there tools that you were able to give people um, that, you know, you felt like, oh, these are the most valuable tools I can give this family or this loved one to help them grieve or help them process. Mm -hmm. And what were those tools? I saw my job as trying to help them speak to the person, um, it, which in some cases, as I said, was harder than others. Um, the thing that surprised me, which I never would have thought before, was that many people sort of instinctually reassured their loved ones that everything was okay and was taken care of and that they don't have to worry about anything. Sometimes with detail, like the bills are paid, 
Um, you know, Frankie's doing all right. Jenny's, you know, she's going to start school in the fall. They would like go through the list of everything and tell them like, you just need to take care of yourself. You just need to fight this. And I mean, that was so moving to, to sort of take all everything off of the list that you can imagine you like carry with you like up to the bitter end. Um, and really just ask the person to, to focus on getting better. I mean, of course, it's, it's also heartbreaking because, you know, when someone's on a ventilator, it's a 90% mortality rate. Why is that? Why is it that so many people who are intubated die? And can you explain what intubation is so that people who aren't clear can, can understand? Um, I mean, the ventilators were the sort of crisis of um, the coronavirus, obviously, that there were there going to be enough ventilators. And the ventilator is essentially a machine that forces oxygen into your lungs and makes you breathe because the person can't kind of take in the oxygen with just an oxygen mask at that at the point at which they're at. And with this virus in particular, it's so necessary because it, it just destroys the lungs. And this is the problem in the United States in particular is that it does it while, while you're not having the most severe symptoms. So from the very beginning for the patients who this virus affects them the most, it's going in and it's destroying the lungs even before they get to the hospital. So by the time they get to the hospital and need a ventilator, they're already, the virus has done its job. And this is the problem that we don't have a system that is catching these people early, which we mm. see in many other countries that they're, they're, once a person has minor symptoms, they're watching them. Here, you crawl into the hospital already having your lungs ravaged and needing an intubator, which most people aren't coming off of. And, you know, these patients are fighting. The average hospital stay is something like 40 days. I mean, they are fighting for a long time on the ventilator. They're fighting for their life. That's a long time to be fighting. They must be so time. exhausted. There's been a lot of mixed reports about whether treating patients with ventilators is in fact the optimal way to be treating them. I, was, I wanted to know what your thoughts were about that. I mean, the idea that in what happened in this country that we ended up chasing the virus, I think is the huge problem. Um, and I think we don't know how to treat it once it gets this bad. And I think we're only beginning to find out. Um, but I do think that from what I saw, we were putting people's bodies through something um, brutal and at the end of it, they weren't making it out. I mean, in the ICU itself, we know that the ventilator um, doesn't work, so you have to turn the patients. You have to turn them into various positions to try to get some of the weight off of their lungs. So you put them on their stomach, you put them on their side, but they're in a medically induced coma and they have a catheter, they have something for excrement, they've got IV lines, they've got heart monitors, they have the breathing tube in their mouth, they have a feeding tube in their nose. I mean, it's all, every part of their body. And then you have to turn them, hopefully multiple times a day. It takes seven grown men to turn one patient. Oh my God. 
Yes, how can a body handle that? How can a body that is already sick with a weakened immune system that's fighting for, for life, how can it handle that? It cannot. It was really hard to see how sick these people were getting. What have you done with, and what do you do as a professional person who's there to give and to support the people who you're with every day? And you said 20 people a day plus their families. What do you do with all of that energy and grief and sadness? Where do you put that? How do you process that? I mean, I, I, you know, having been in analysis for 20 years, three, four times a week, I am very careful to like look at where I'm at, which doesn't mean that you don't experience it. I think you experience it more in a way. I mean, you know how to go to all the kind of corners and depths of things and then kind of watch it and try to take a step back and think about what's going on and, um, I had I had my moments in this. I think when I uh, a patient kind of passed really quickly, like I wasn't prepared for it. Um, it's the first time I came home and uh, I started kind of freaking out about the coronavirus, that it was in me, that it was on my hands, that it would like I had touched my face. I had a book in my bag that I had brought to the hospital and I had gotten it out at some point and then it was on my bed. So the coronavirus all of a sudden was all around me. And then I, I thought, well, it's okay, fine, I'm dying. Like that's just that's just what's happening. You know, I had this moment where, you know, like clearly had gotten to me. Um and then I watched myself do all kinds of mental somersaults. Um, and then I, I reached out to my partner who drove back the next day from Shelter Island, which was really helpful. In my opinion, we're experiencing not, not only a global pandemic with this virus, but we're also experiencing a global pandemic of trauma. How are we going to manage and deal and treat and support so many people who are experiencing various levels of trauma? We don't have um, great mental health care um, in this country, certainly, but in most of them from what I gather. Um, so I think it's going to be really tough because I think many, many people are going to need it because the question of trauma is, do you have the resources before it happened to be able to kind of hold the fallout of a life that's just changed so radically and the ambiguity and the time that it takes to sort out what that means for you. You know, and that's well, what's most strange. People don't. Most people, most people don't. don't. They don't. Yeah. They don't have that. Um, and then, you know, again, it's like the, it's like kind of chasing the virus. We're going to have to swoop in and help people who we haven't given resources to have resources in the midst of a situation that is um, exacerbating a problem of feeling alone, feeling uncared for, feeling anxiety, feeling depression. Um, and this is just a situation of pure uncertainty. And I don't know in history when the last time is that we as a species experience this much uncertainty. 
apparently the calls coming from children, the sexual assault hotlines, I don't know the exact percentage, are up exponentially from children being quarantined with their abusers. The domestic violence hotlines mm-hmm. are through the roof again because people, you know, a lot of women are again being stuck um, in environments with their assaulters. And the level of stress and anxiety in most homes around the world is so much higher and people do not know what's going to happen. This, this right now that we're living in, these days, these moments, it's going to be hundreds of years probably before the trauma that we as a collective consciousness are experiencing now is not passed on. There will be generations of kids the same way as generational trauma. I have friends whose grandparents were in the Holocaust or, you know, a grandparent or a parent experienced very traumatic things. And we know from, you know, epigenetics, what happens. And we're, in my opinion, and I'm not a doctor, this is just my, you know, pedestrian analogy, you know, I think we're looking at generations of the impact of the trauma we're experiencing now. I think it's um, French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan always talked about how it takes three generations to produce a real breakdown. Mm. Um, You know, which is what you're saying. It's about a hundred years. And I think that that's especially true because I see the grandchildren a lot, you know, because they're in their thirties, forties, let's say of, of Holocaust survivors. Um, and you see the exacerbation from that, from point A to point B to point C. Um, and there is something, especially a trauma that's not metabolized and trauma is not fully metabolizable, but you have to do some job <laughs> to at least neutralize some part of it. Otherwise it, it just, it races down, it races down the line. Yeah. It just passes the lin- it just lives lives on within the lineage. I mean, even the little kids, like my twins are 13 years old and they have gone from having full lives where they're individuating and they're beginning to go out in the world and have some autonomy to spending, you know, 22 hours a day in their bedrooms, working on a screen, communicating on a screen with their friends, it is like everyone's worlds have gotten myopic and what that has done to stunting their emotional, spiritual, physical growth. And this is just my kids, you know, I'm looking at that Mm -hmm. thinking, wow, there's very little I can do to prevent this injury. No, the family is not going to feel safe if it's the only thing that you have in your life. I mean, a 24-7 family is just not a good idea. <laughs> it's not. No, I love families, anybody. but it's just for anybody. It's not a good idea. And then the world doesn't feel safe. And governments feel especially unsafe at this point. So it really is an experience of feeling like you have nowhere to turn. You can't go in, you can't go out. And for adults that perhaps have more awareness and are cognizant of what's going on and can articulate what you just described, which is I, the anxiety levels are an all-time high. People do not feel safe anywhere, as you said. 
we ultimately know that safety is something that is a place inside ourselves, but it takes many, many years to know that and to feel that and to be able to tap into that and to rest in that place. Mm-hmm. And that isn't the case for most people. It's not the case for most people. But I do, I mean, if there was some part of me that was going to be optimistic, <laughs> I, I hope that this is something that wakes us up to what we need to provide for people. I don't know whether it's going to be, but I feel like I've heard people who I wouldn't expect kind of looking around and realizing that we need to give people a lot more than we're giving them. And we're kind of seeing what is fundamental to making people have decent lives. And also, I know for myself, looking at the areas where we've been given too much, mm-hmm. where are the areas where we are deficient individually and within a community and then within a world? And where are the places where that we have too much? Where have we put our focus and attention in gathering and growing and expanding that is just not important? So it's, yes, if there is a piece of optimism, I know for myself, I feel like it's a massive recalibration of priority. Absolutely. I mean, we, we've just seen how much less we can live with. I don't know. When I, when I say like I was really impressed with some of these families and they're just, you know, rallying in the moment of crisis to realize that that's, that's what's important. I mean, be there for one another. Have, have made something enough to have it be able to be there when it's most needed. Um, I mean, I really like when I saw the the families with the 10 people on Zoom and they would just all talk with the person there. They would just all, they would just, they would just all speak. It was so beautiful. It was so moving. You're describing love, right? Like, yeah. like connection, care, love. And yet it is the thing that is so hard for people to invest in, nurture, give time and attention to. And it's not even people's faults because, you know, you know more than I do. You're treating people who, you're treating people, you know, and you're hearing stories. And I, as someone who interviews people, I get to hear a lot of very personal experiences that people have had. And I've come to feel, and certainly I know with my own recovery, it's not necessarily someone's fault. You know, we have parents who experience trauma or neglect. We have parents who have to work multiple jobs or who don't have the required skill set or education to be able to work less and earn enough. And, and therefore, their children and their families are neglected and impacted and made to, you know, be grown-ups before they're ready and lost their childhoods and death of a parent or addiction or whatever it is. It's not really people's fault a lot of the time that they haven't been able to give their family what that family needs and what that individual, those children, those siblings need. 
And yet what you're saying is that you're seeing at the end moments, the people and the families that are able to rally and show up in whatever form they show up to help that person move on, to say goodbye to them. It sounds like that really impacted you witnessing that. It did. I mean, I'm an only child and uh, divorced parents um, who both actually experienced the death of a parent very young. I actually think it's the only reason my parents got together was that they both had dead dads um, that they hadn't really figured out how to mourn. Um, So I've always been more of like an alone person. So to see the big family um, I think I was in awe of it and um, it really moved me because it's not, it's not something I know well. I mean, I also, I, you know, and also the family that can speak, you know, I, and even there's one woman who um, she's having a really hard time. She was very anxious and she was very angry and she had a do not resuscitate order and they wanted to intubate her and she said she didn't want it. And in some ways, you know, I think you're right. She, her, her right not to be intubated is should be respected, but she was also going to die very quickly if she wasn't intubated, at least, you know, in the way that the doctors were thinking. And so we got her family on the line to just try to have a conversation, all of us together. And she did not want to talk to her family. She didn't want to talk to them. And um, she got very sick very quickly. She was intubated and um, she was most likely going to, pass soon and I called the daughter and I said do you want to talk to your mother um and she said she said to me she said let me tell you something she goes I'm not a fantasist I'm a I'm a realist and she goes my mother was a very angry woman and when we were on the phone with her the other day um or on the FaceTime um we said we love you mom and she said if you love me hang up um and she goes so I'm going to decline because this is a very, very delicate moment and I don't want to exacerbate her. And I don't know that her hearing my voice is actually going to be a comfort to her. Um, and I said, I, I respect that and I hear you. And I think you're making a choice for your mother. That's the choice that you what think a, you made. What a loving decision. Mm-hmm. That is so... That is a phenomenal example of love that she knew her mother and accepted her mother's rejection. I mean, it was so powerful. And was able to put her own need and feelings aside in that moment to love her mother and that even if that meant she would never speak to her again. Wow. And she had fought the hospital on the DNR and the question of what was right. It wasn't, you know, she was there. Did she die in the end? She did. I was hoping you would say she didn't. I like to think that fighters, you know, people who are feisty like that and question everything. No, I don't want that. What is that? You know, (laughs) they pull through. Yeah. You know, um, I, 
I have a friend who's an end of life social worker and she helps people facilitate dying at home, not in a medical facility. And she lived with me for many years. And so I had the privilege of getting to know some of her patients by name. And sometimes she would be called into work with people in the last five days. Sometimes it was, you know, they thought it was five days, but it ended up being five months, you know, and I was, I was able to go and do a, um, a project with her patients where I photographed and interviewed people in the last week of their lives. And it was a profound gift for me, a profound gift because they had such little time. They had such little time left and for them to give me time to talk to me and to let me take their portrait was, it was profound. Again, I will never forget those stories and those people. And there was a common thread that ran through the patients. And afterwards I was able to identify that the people who died with more peace were people who had some kind of spiritual or religious belief. And the people who died consumed by anger were people who did not have that. And it took me a while to kind of go, oh, I see this. It was fascinating. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you had any observation or experience of anything like that over the last four weeks? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the people who were religious or spiritual or who had a practice around that and brought it into these calls, um, I don't know, had access to a kind of eloquence about death. I mean, if religion is anything, uh, it, it is something that speaks to the question of mortality, I think, um, and puts words to it. So the fact that they could turn to prayer, they could turn to reading verse from the Bible, um, and that you can hear the meaning that it has for them, that they feel connected to each other and to the patient around this common language. Um, I, I absolutely saw and uh, had a huge amount of respect for. And, I, you know, and it was in contrast to people who could not speak, you know, who would kind of yell, hello, are you okay? Are you okay? Okay. Okay. Well, okay. I don't know. Um, we're here. I'll call back tomorrow. You know, the, like to not have the words in that moment and to place so much demand on the sick person to speak when they can't versus having a language that puts everyone um, together in an understanding of what they're facing. So absolutely. Um, and I'm, I'm not religious um, in that sense. I think I, I treat the unconscious like its own kind of spirituality, but um, I, I really envied it in a way. Is there anything that you're opinion has changed on through having spent the last four weeks with these people? I think the, the, 
the families and the community in the hospital and the nurses really changed me to the extent that it is a world in a family, like let's say in a family unit and it's with its own little ecology. And then you have the ecology of the hospital. And then you have the nurses who deal with new people all the time under situations of duress. There's an incredible tolerance for everyone's absolute individuality, whatever it is. If you're finicky, if you're a little aggressive, if you're passive aggressive, if you're sad, if you scream all the time, if you are demanding, everyone just embraces this in one another. And, you know, I think in our like little individual, sometimes privileged lives, we can get really intolerant. Um, and one of the things that you see about families that have learned to connect with each other is that they respect each other's idiosyncrasies and they bring that to the table as a source of humor or as something to talk about or something, you know, oh, have you heard about so-and-so? They're doing X, Y, and Z again. And then, you know, they all kind of laugh together and they want to tell this as a story. Um, you know, and I think because in my profession, I listen to so much about how other, the way that other people are pains us. This was a moment in which I saw the comfort that you can take in the way that other people are and also um, just kind of open your heart to it, even when they're strangers. Um, and that, that really um, is a perspective that I think that we, I, have, I lose sight of um, in some myopia of my life. And I mean, it, it, the, the feeling I had at the end of it, despite, you know, what was moving was um, also rage and a sense of um, the senselessness of so many of these deaths, just feeling like this is, this is senseless, um, that these people should not have died if we had a, a better society. I guess I also have been thinking about, I hope we don't, lose the sensitivity to the fact that this is not just a number of people. Every day we get updates. This many people died in this state, in this country, you know, globally, this is how many people died. It's like, these are not just statistics, they're people. And when it's you're you and you're processing so many deaths, and when you're a nurse and you're a doctor and you're a frontline worker, how do you keep from people becoming a statistic? Right. I mean, I have to say that ICU nurses who, um, they're hard as nails. Um, they have to be though. I mean, I, I watch what they have to do with these bodies. I mean, cleaning out the mouths and dealing with, um, I mean, just, you know, really extreme circumstances with, you know, all the patients kind of lined up in one room and they just go from bed to bed to bed to bed to bed on these like 12 hour shifts. Um, and they're hard. I mean, you know, I, I'd say, how is this patient doing? And, and the ICU nurse would say, they're dying. Everyone in here is dying. You know, sort of just like that, like flat affect. And I would, you know, like it would kind of hit me like a tidal wave. Um, and even in myself, I think there were moments in which I felt like I was getting completely numb. And you have to fight back to get to the feeling. So for everybody else in this world that isn't seeing it, that isn't, you know, it, it becomes just something on the TV. And it worries me. I mean, I, I was right there and I watched myself get numb. I can't imagine for everyone else whom it's statistics. Um, and then you also have these kind of Pyrrhic victory narratives. Um, 
Well, that's why it's so important that we share stories as broadly as possible from people who are in the rooms, who are experiencing this firsthand, and to not be afraid to share the horror and the desperation and the sadness and the grief and the loss, because that is what's happening. Yeah. And I, I am so, um, I am an advocate for sharing the truth. Someone trying to house party me. Um, I am an advocate for sharing the truth, no matter how hard it is and how disruptive it is, because whilst we continue to, as you said, keep our old people in homes and let them rot and die uh, to keep them out of the way, and whilst we continue to keep the covers on the reality of what's happening in our hospitals around the world, but specifically in America, we're doing everyone a disservice. Mm -hmm. And we're doing the people who have died a disservice. That's my feeling. Yeah, I mean, the news these days is just these, like, talking head, you know, giving their opinions on the state of the world, and um, we're not showing it, what's happening. We're not showing it. We're not, we're not, like, talking about the reality of it. It becomes opinions on what the last politician said. Um, well, that's why I, I wanted to talk to you, Jameson, because... I've seen a lot of interviews with people just giving their opinions and what I feel is really important to share and what I think people want mm -hmm. is a truthful experience and perspective that allows for the humanness and keeps us focused in the fact that these are lives and families and human beings. And if we can taste and if we can get a sense of the depth of sadness and grief and loss, only from that place can we heal whilst it's kept shrouded in, you know, opinions and political maneuvers. We can't. I mean, it's sort of why I imagine the doctors and nurses are the only ones to counter protests against these protests to say, um, I'm in there and I'm watching people die and I'm watching uh, loved ones losing their mind and I can't believe that you are out here without a mask on. Those are the only opinions that matter. Honestly, for me, if you have not seen it or lived it, your opinion is not really valid to me because it's just hypotheses. It's not a good, it's, this is not a good death. I mean, I would say that, I would say that this is not a good way to die. Um, not that there's good ways to die, but I, I think that there's something brutal about this and we should really... Um, understand that. If you made it through to the end of this episode, thank you very much. This is one of those hard conversations that is sometimes uncomfortable to listen to, but I feel is really important to be shared. So thank you. Also, I made this from my house. I had help from my husband and friends with editing and sound but please excuse the inconsistencies. 
uh, with certainly with sound. I, I did my best and I really wanted to get this story out. So it is less than ideal, but it is what it is. And again, thank you for listening. And I will be sharing more conversations with you next week. Until then.